0: We wrote a book in 60 days, um, and it was a bestseller in 61 days, so from conception to launch. Self-published, and that changed the tide for us. We started to attract businesses far and wide. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Stay Hungry podcast, it's Joel at Codebreak, I'm on my own today and we're talking about resilience and the mindset to succeed. So yeah, as I said, it's Joel at Codebreak, on my own today, uh, recording solo, Andy's off on his jollies, on his way to sunny Barcelona, so... Need to get a podcast in, and here I am. And I thought I would uh, share some of my story with you. So, resilience, obviously, massive topic in entrepreneurial world, in business, in small business, and generally, the most successful businesses you see have been able to take a lot of shit. Um, you know, there's no two ways about it. They take a fair beating on their way to that success. Now, that's not to say they didn't have a good time doing it. But they probably found mechanisms for coping with some of the shit that got flung their way. They probably found ways to deal with some of the things that inevitably face you in business. Now, the kind of things I'm talking about in business that you might encounter are uh, cash flow pains. That can be really tricky, you know, when the VAT man's on your back and the business is growing at such a rate that the VAT bill's are ever increasing and you're having to reinvest to bring staff on board and things like that, you know, Costs, bringing costs into the business like staff that don't actually reduce the VAT bill. And so you create a cash flow squeeze, that feast and famine thing that lots of business owners talk about. External pressure. So people saying, Are you sure? Or is this the right thing for you? Or questioning what you're doing. That can be very tricky, particularly when it's loved ones, family members, friends, close friends, that kind of thing. And then also the stuff that you don't expect to happen to you, the things where Other business owners are under pressure, and so maybe they ask for a refund when you haven't done anything wrong, or they start to give your team shit when you know your team's lovely. I mean, I see loads of our clients go through that kind of thing. And then all the unexpected shit that happens to every business, suppliers going bump, customers going bump, suppliers failing to deliver things never going quite as they were planned to, which they never do. Um, The pressures of day-to-day, you know, the payroll, all these things, you need a certain level of resilience. And the fallacy in business is that the bigger you get, the easier it becomes, because maybe you have more money, or maybe you have um, more experience. But The reality is the bigger you get, the harder it gets because the problems get bigger and so your level of resilience and your mindset and your methods for coping with it need to be better and I thought I would hop on today and record an episode about some of my life experiences, not all of them, and how that's meant that I've had to develop a resilient mindset and why that's relevant to business. So without going into kind of too much gory detail, I'll share some things that I went through in as chronological an order as I can Uh, and I'll talk about, I'll bring this all together so you can see how that has impacted me as an entrepreneur and how that level of resilience is really useful and actually some of those traumas are my superpowers as such for helping me be better in business. So some of our listeners will know this and have heard me talk about it before but it's not something that I regularly talk about and before I go into any detail on some of the things I'm about to say I will say I'm not looking for sympathy you know and that's not from an ungrateful place that's just not what I'm saying everything I share today and sharing this podcast is shared because if it helps one person then it was worth sharing and I'm fortunate enough that for most of my traumas and things I've been through I've either found a way to cope with them or uh, I've gotten past them. And so sympathy isn't really my friend. I, I'd like to think I'm a fairly empathetic person because of the things I've been through. And I also would like to say, I appreciate that not everybody's been through extreme trauma, but everybody's stresses and anxieties are theirs, and they're just as important to them. So if you're listening to this and you've been through far worse than me, this isn't a dick-swinging contest. I'm not, I'm not trying to say... I'm the most traumatized person ever or any of that. If you're listening to this and think thinking fucking oh, I've never been through anything like that, that doesn't matter either. That's not what we're saying here. You might you've you're, you might have your own things, you know. To some people the milk going off is an absolute disaster and to other people the roof falling in on their house doesn't even make them twitch. So let's get into it and I'll explain my story and how perhaps I wasn't quite as resilient as I thought I was, and how I had to do a lot of work to get to where I am today. So, I was born in 1987, and the year I was born, so I was born in May, and on the Valentine's Day before I was born, my parents got married. So, my parents got married uh, because my mum was pregnant with me, and at that time, according to them, uh, my dad wouldn't have had many rights if if, he, if they weren't married, I think that's true as well. Um so, they, yeah, they got married in 1987. Seven days after they got married, my dad's brother committed suicide, um, unexpectedly. So, I don't think anybody really realised anything was wrong. And somebody found him on the top of the hills where where my family grew up. And, uh, yeah, he'd taken his own life. So, that threw my entire family into turmoil. Now, bear in mind, two and a half months later, I was born. That was quite a lot to be born into, and you don't know that you've been born into that. But as I started to sort of get an understanding and communicate growing up, I realised something was very wrong. You know, my parents, um, they rode a lot, and I thought all oh, people rode a lot and didn't learn until later in life that that's not true. Sometimes those rows got physical. Just, yeah, very strange environment. But there were times as well where things were lovely and quite calm, and we did amazing things. And like I had the kind of parents that worked really hard, and um, we were by no means well off at any point. You know, very often we were quite hard up for cash, but they always made sure I had nice things. And if they couldn't buy me something new, like my dad was handy. So I remember he rescued like an old school bike and he did it all up for me and it looked brand new when I got it but it wasn't and you know that was epic that kind of thing Um, but it transpired that my dad had developed bipolar disorder or had bipolar disorder and so it was a volatile household a lot of trauma and my dad's mental illness going on Um, and there was an incident when I was five so we lived in the sticks at the time and, and when I was five Me, my dad and my little brother were going for a walk, taking the dog for a walk, which was a daily thing. And very often, me and my brother used to love going with my dad for the dog walk because um, he he called it camel rides, but he basically put you up on his shoulders and and run around the field. And, you know, that's like one of my fondest memories. But my dad had a dark side um, that came along with his illness. So if he was in a manic state... Some of his behaviors are quite unpredictable, and I remember climbing over this kind of five foot farmer's fence and it had barbed wire wrapped round the top of it to stop people climbing over it funnily enough, but it was on a on a right of way, so climbed over it, and I nearly snagged my shorts climbing over it and I remember my dad just lost his shit like I'd climbed over this fence wrong the way I'd done it was disgusting to him and we weren't going home until I'd shown him that I could climb over this fence properly so I clambered back up this gate and, and I remember vividly to this day shaking because I was so scared to do it right and it a, you know a rickety gate and a five, foot, a five foot gate to a five year old is high and I got to the top and as I got to the top I slipped and landed head first in the rocks underneath the gate and I cracked my head just above my eye and I've, I've still got the scar to this day And when you're five, you don't, you know, you haven't seen that much. You know, if you're probably lucky enough to have not seen that much blood or stuff before. But I I bled so much that my clothes were soaked. And yeah, you know, if it had been an inch further down, I'd have lost my eye. And I remember in that moment losing trust in my dad and realising something wasn't right. And as, as a five year old who idolizes their dad, you know, my dad was quite a useful guy, both in terms of he was very practical and handy, but he was like, you know, muscly and strong. And no, no one at school said, Oh, my dad could beat up your dad. I never had to go through that because they couldn't. But suddenly I was like, something's not, something's not right here. He's just forced me to climb over a gate, which I'm fairly sure isn't normal. I'm not learning a lesson from this. And then I've nearly caved my head in. And, and and my dad obviously immediately realised how dramatic it was and sort of came to his senses and he picked me up and um, carried me to the doctors as quick as he could. And this was sort of like, so this would have been 1992, so it was an era where you could kind of get like out-of-hours appointments at the doctors and stuff still and home visits, so he got me to the doctors and I remember the doctor asking lots of questions and I was like, why is the doctor asking so many questions? And now, as an adult, I realise he was asking those questions because he wanted to ascertain if something even more awful had gone on and that I hadn't just fallen off a gate but I had essentially I'd just fallen off a gate so that was kind of where I first learned had to learn how to be resilient because I lost trust in everybody because of that and you had to as a as a child who the one person you idolise lets you down, you then kind of change tact. And so I only really ever relied on myself from that point. Um, I had a real big fear of authority, obviously because it was authority as such that made me climb off that fucking gate. But I had to um make my own way. And I remember feeling like that from very, very young. So I, I remember consuming books because I wanted to know how to be better. And I remember... Always wanting to be the best in class at maths, at English, at sport. And that happened all the way through primary school. And it isolated me to an extent because the other kids were like, well, oh, fucking hell, why does this guy want to be the best at everything? And, and I did. I did want to be the best at everything. I was like fiercely competitive, but just trying to prove myself to myself all the time. And because I felt like I had no control, the one thing I could control was being better than everybody else. Um, which was was a strange thing. So, yeah, fast forward a bit, obviously went to secondary school. In the early years of secondary school, um, my dad's illness had got worse, so he was spending a lot, big, big, long periods of being low and then extreme periods of being manic, you know, incidents that involved, like, the police and attention, and that meant getting bullied at school about it and strange goings on. And my dad, at the time, had been sectioned and was in hospital, and he tried to take his own life. And obviously that was absolutely horrific. But I had to go to school the next day. And there's nothing worse than hearing that your dad's tried to take their own life. But then going to school and getting bullied for it is next fucking level. And because I was like 12 at the time, I was a big lad when I was 12. So it wasn't the same as getting bullied in primary school, let's say. And a few people started to bully me for it. And I just decided, um, because I didn't, I didn't want to be a victim of this scenario, I decided that I wasn't going to take it. And I made that pretty clear to bullies, to staff, because even some of the staff were like fairly harsh to me, some of the teaching staff. So yeah, I just made it clear I wasn't going to take it, and it changed who I was in secondary school. So I went from being not shy, but I was geeky, and certainly like I didn't understand why people didn't like me doing well. I didn't appreciate that school isn't an environment to always put your head above the parapet. But I changed to someone with a sharp tongue who, if someone challenged me or bullied me, I'd I'd like use my wits to bury them. And that's kinda of stuck with me to be honest. I've still got that about me now and I have to control it because it's not it's not a it's not a sexy trait when someone says something slightly derogatory about you, so you absolutely bury them. That's not that's not cool. Um and that's kinda of, yeah, that's kinda of how school panned out for me then was secondary school was tough because people knew I wasn't from a well to do household, we'd got these things going on, you know, certain friends weren't allowed to come round to my house because of whatever their parents were telling them. And, and I knew I was different. I knew there was... And the resilience I needed to just get through school and face up to things. And I, I wouldn't say I ever became a bully, but I know that there would have been certain people who picked on me and regretted it because I just wasn't willing to be a victim. And as I got older, that kind of got drummed out of me a little bit because people frowned upon how feisty I was and maybe it would have been better to have utilized that energy in other ways or, or to funnel that feistiness into something more productive. So where I grew up, secondary school stops and then you go to college, we didn't have a sixth form. I went to college, I went to college with my best friend and, and you know she was great and, and she had some of her own struggles but she understood me. And understood some of the stuff I'd gone through and so we could talk and she wasn't really a small talker and neither am I. And So I unravelled a little bit. I I trusted her and it meant that I could talk about how I was feeling and talk about things in more depth without kind of fear of consequence. I didn't have to put up that wall. So... Yeah. To summarise all of that, obviously went through some trauma, some terrifically difficult times with my dad, um, and how that impacted the way I think in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of business, in terms of success mindset. So I grew up in an environment where nobody achieved anything. You you hustled and you and you grind to make ends meet, which gave me a tremendous work ethic. So these things were really difficult. But actually when my dad was well, and my mum to make ends meet when he was unwell, worked like dogs. They were unbelievable. You know, mum, I remember mum working four jobs, just to piece everything together, and that really rubbed off on me. I got a paper round very, very young, because I saw the correlation between working your arse off and putting food on the table, and... I've always had a bit of shiny object syndrome and I wanted nice things. I remember as a kid, it was VHSs. I like I had so many videotapes and it was because I'd just go do my paper round every day. And then I'd get the train into Shrewsbury, the nearest town. They had a virgin megastore and it was always like three for five quid on the videos if you got like shit ones from the 80s. And I always came back with three videos. And it was like, it was like my weekly routine. I just loved films. Uh, but that work ethic, I knew you had to earn it. But I had no idea how to earn big. I just had this deep work ethic, uh, a bit of a sense of trauma, some some serious resilience and a desire for more. I knew there was more to life than what I'd been through. But I had all these things going on and and I grew up with my cousin alongside me. He actually lived two doors down, so he was three years older than me. Been through a lot of the similar th- similar things to me because um, his dad was my dad's other brother. So, you know, they going through the same traumas in their house. And actually, when by the time my cousin had got to 19, so I'm 16, finishing school, and he was 19, he was already a fully-fledged alcoholic. You know, he was drinking a lot, he was doing drugs. He'd already got a kid at that age. So we'd grown up in parallel, and you could see the choices there for me. The choice was thrive or die to an extent um and that started to lay the foundations for kind of my business mindset which I didn't know that then but yeah just just being honest with, with you guys listening that's kind of where this stuff came from anyway back to college years so my best pal Emily her name was um we'd spend a lot of time together um and it was purely, you know, which was great mates. And I had a girlfriend, she had a boyfriend. And I'll, I'll be honest, my girlfriend was fairly, fairly jealous of the situation. Um, and I used to get frustrated because I was loyal. Because of everything I'd been through, I was fiercely loyal. So it wasn't like my girlfriend had anything to worry about. Now, in hindsight, like I thought Emily was amazing. And just because I didn't act on any of the temptations, I'm not going to say they weren't there. She was, She was a, a lovely woman. Um but the reason I'm hesitating so much on this podcast is this is tough so over New Year so we're on Christmas break from college and Emily texts me and says oh, can you give me a buzz and I was with my girlfriend at the time I won't name her because that's not fair but I was with my girlfriend at the time and I knew it would cause a stink if I did I just knew it would cause carnage so I didn't give her a buzz and i rang back the next day when the coast was clear as such and when i rang back there was no answer so i was like, oh okay can't have been that important don't worry about it and the day after we were back at college after the after the christmas holidays so i went back to college and i got off the bus and literally as soon as i got off the bus a girl came running up to me and said did you hear about emily and uh no they said um she's dead and all right my entire being left my body. It was just like what and it, it transpired she committed suicide that night. She asked me to ring and uh so all that kind of resilience and all that effort and all that drive to achieve, and all the things that my childhood trauma had taught me and I, it just all left me all in one hit. I was just i' mean, for, for for weeks, months, I had nothing nothing what was the point in anything because that was just next level shit and um you know i've I've learned i've learned some tremendous lessons from it since which i'll go on to later but to talk about resilience and what some people go through if you think someone ringing you up because you're late paying a bill or you've got a cash flow issue in your business or um, someone's in your parking space in the car park is an issue, you've got fucking... You're very fortunate. That's all I can say. Like, And, yeah, this, this is a period in my life where I knew I was going to go to university, but what was the fucking point? And I'd lost my best pal. My other friend's didn't know what to do didn't know how to react didn't know how to support me um, I, you know I was already quite hard work as a pal with everyone else I had going on so yeah this was a lot um but right sort of dwelling on that point what did happen is I went I went to university and somehow sort of mustered the strength to treat as, as a fresh start because I tried so hard to be what everyone needed me to be from five years old to 18 years old because of the nature of everything going on around me. So particularly away from school, actually at school I thrived because I just knuckled down into the work and ultimately my competitive edge meant that I wanted to be better than everyone at everything. So even when I was distracted, I got frustrated if I wasn't the best so I would just practice at math, science, whatever. Whereas away from school, at home i had to be whoever the person i needed to be to stop having arguments with my dad cuz it's very difficult for a teenager to um be rational about someone with bipolar you just want to argue back and win the argument um and then you know with friends you know when i played football and all these things away from school i had to kind of pretend like everything was okay and that i was like one of the lads and and I forced myself to be good at football so that I had an outlet and going to university all that was gone I could just go to university and be Joel and it was probably the most peaceful 3 years of my life to that point because although in that time period my parents separated uh, various other things went on I could just be me I could you know I could be nice to people without fear of consequence a lot of the people I met didn't know me, didn't know my background. I you know, I grew up in a, in a village, so everything that ever happened in my family, by the time I got to school the next day, everybody knew. When you're at university in a big town, you could pretty much get away with murder. Not that I did, but you see my point. So that was three years of peace, and it was also three years where I did graphic design at university. I did a lot of freelancing whilst I was at university. I first got the bug of thinking I could work for myself, I understood, like when you freelance for lots of different agencies and printers and things like that, you start to see the things they do wrong and you also start to see the things they do really well and you pick and choose the bits you want and that was a really smart way to kind of build business resilience to start to be like, ah, okay, so that printer there, they only take a 20% deposit and because they only take a 20% deposit, they're actually exposed on the job for about 15%. And because they're exposed on the job for about 15%, when people don't pay, it hurts. them. where that one over there takes a 50% deposit, and so they're not exposed on the job at all. So when someone doesn't pay, although it's shit, it's not as shit as it is for them. And then I would see things about like rolling contracts for design agencies and all these various things, the way people took payment, the way people chased payment, the way people position themselves, so I'd meet agency owners that were literally the butcher, the baker the candlestick maker, they did the cleaning they did the invoicing, they did the chasing and then I met other agency, other agency owners who were the big picture thinkers and they got someone else to do the chasing or if they couldn't get someone else to do the chasing they made it look like somebody else did the chasing so I was learning all these little things doing that freelance work and then I did a year in industry and more freelancing and my mum got ill and as my mum got ill um, my girlfriend at the time also wanted to move back to shropshire so we did and i took a job in a manufacturer and it was hard and i was struggling somewhat with understanding the stresses because we do like million pound manufacturing runs and someone would have to fly out to china to proof it in the factory before it was made and the tiniest of fault, and the client would reject it. And that level of pressure on a 23-year-old is a lot. But I didn't realise at the time that was what was going on. And it wasn't just that it was that level of pressure. It was the pressure of everything else that had happened in my life that hadn't been dealt with. So you react to pressure differently when you've got un, kind of unresolved trauma. So did that job. Didn't really enjoy it, and felt my design skills weren't required because the, com- the country was in recession at the time so design was kind of a luxury and I thought oh, sod it. I'll be an accountant which is a strange thing to decide to do but I knew at that age that I was going to start a company and run my own business one day and becoming an accountant is not a daft thing to do when you're going to have to read balance sheets and understand facts and figures and I also knew it was going to be design marketing based And I felt that the weakness that most design and marketing agencies had was that when it came to talking about return on investment and finances, that's where the problem lay, that it was too fluffy and you needed like some business nouse in the conversation. So well, if I become a chartered accountant, I'm kind of killing two birds with one stone. I'll know how to run my own company, surely, although maybe that isn't as true as I thought it was at the time. And... I'll also know how to talk about the finances in a way that resonates with a business owner. Again, probably not as true as I hoped it would be. But that was an interesting time. I absolutely battered my first set of exams, You know, completely reignited that competitive edge of I want to be the best in the class. I remember one exam. You could leave when you were finished and it was an hour and a half exam. And I walked in and I left 12 minutes after it started and I got 98% on the exam. No, that's not... That's not a humble brag. It doesn't sound very humble, to be honest. It's that was how feisty I was to to be competitive about that shit, which is weird, but it's just the truth. So, and I remember walking out, and someone afterwards gave me a ring and said, like, "Oh, did you find that really hard? Like, you, you were, you know, I barely written my name down, and you were gone." And uh, I was like, "No, I just blitzed it. I just, I'd, I'd practiced and revised so hard for that one that I just smashed through it." And sure enough, the results proved I had. But um, weirdly, at that time, I was being sent around the country a lot and I felt myself getting more and more tired. I wasn't able to get enough sleep because I having to revise a lot and also do these audits for the accountant. And I could, fi- like, I had this horrible feeling in my gut, but I didn't know what it was. And I was worrying about everything. Like Every little thing was bothering me. And... And it was, it was building, and it was building, and it was building. And I couldn't cope with it. And I told, I made the mistake of telling the HR team at the company, thinking that they were there to help me. And in hindsight, what they actually did was they started working me harder. Um, because I think they knew that that would be a way to exit me from the business if they kind of broke me, which... Maybe that's not true, but that's certainly how it felt at the time. And I got myself into a right state. Like, I didn't even want to exist anymore. I was worrying about everything, not sleeping, catastrophizing about what ifs, and just. And then all that, all the chickens came home to roost at once. All this stuff from the past came home to roost at once. And the, my biggest fear was telling my mum that I thought I had depression because she'd spent a life like a lifetime of dealing with it with my dad. And obviously she'd lost a brother-in-law to it and so on and so forth. And I just, the guilt of having to tell her that someone else in her life now had it just consumed me. It was horrific. And I didn't know whether to sort of tell her or not. And then I realised that if I didn't tell her, she might find me dead. And that was worse. So I told her, and you know she was very she was very supportive. She was very good, made sure I went to the doctors, made sure I got the help I needed, and I also left the accountancy practice and just took some time to myself to like gather myself. which felt incredibly selfish at the time, but I did have money in the bank, so I could kind of pay my way. but it was really hard to have all these kind of entrepreneurial thought brewing. And to feel like a failure at the same time, it was like, well, how the fuck could you start your own business? You couldn't even cope with working for someone else. And that's kind of how you, my brain got to me and and my relationship at the time my girlfriend broke down and I just was like, where the fuck is this going? And the, the lessons I learned, though, from accountancy were pretty, pretty massive, you know, I, I could reconcile accounts I could read a balance sheet I knew about shareholdings I knew about profits I knew about like the hidden costs of business I knew about audits I knew where businesses were talking shit you know you you quickly realize where the, where the skeletons are hidden when you audit people's accounts so it really put me in a strong position to to run a marketing company because you need that kind of level of insight into the into the possible clients that you'd be dealing with and so time passed on a little bit, and I set up as a graphic designer on my own. Now, as it goes, I had five quid in my pocket. I'd use the last of my money to buy to buy a computer to get this thing going. And the way I first promoted the business was the local football team were doing a charity auction, and they needed local businesses to donate to this charity auction. So I said, oh, "I'll I'll sort that for you," and it gave me an excuse to go into every local business in the town where I lived and ask them if they'd like to donate, and then, well, do you play for the football team? And to be fair, I wasn't in the best nick at the time, so it was pretty obvious I didn't play for the football team. And just got chatting, oh, no, I don't play for the football team, I'm just helping them do this. Actually, I run a a local business, we do graphic design, you know, websites, business cards, stationery, that kind of thing. If you've ever got any requirement for that, let's have a chat. And I reckon I picked up my first 10 clients purely from that two days wandering around the town speaking to businesses, and those 10 clients put more money in my bank account than I'd earned in my entire career to that point. And it twigged with me. Like, you can do this. Like, you, you've got this. And it wasn't enough either. I, I very quickly realized I wasn't financially motivated. I liked the game. And so I'm on antidepressants at this point in time. I'm having cognitive behavioral therapy. I've decided to start my own business. And I'm doing all right at it. And I'm like making ends meet. And I'd met a new partner and she wanted us to go to Disney, Disney World in Florida the following year, which when you meet a new partner and you're a young bloke, saying no is not really something you're particularly good at. So I was like, right, well I need to earn enough money that we can get to fucking Disney World. So I started employing all the skills and the tactics that I'd learned and the things that I'd seen agencies do wrong and the things I'd seen businesses do wrong from the accounting and I started to get shit as well because if you do anything to do with graphic design rightly or wrongly some of it's subjective so people give you quite a lot of criticism and I took the criticism hard but I used it to fuel me and I used it to like push forward and I could feel that resilience building inside me. Now I mentioned that I was living a life in parallel with my cousin so he was a couple of years older than me and live two doors down so I'm doing all this stuff and at the same time his alcoholism has gone bananas so he's having to spend time at my grandparents and they're having to like give him a tiny bit of alcohol every day so he doesn't go cold turkey but not so much that he goes off on a binge and then um he's not spending any time with his daughter and he's not spending any time with his dad and All these things, like, pretty traumatic. So we were living this, like, weird parallel life where I'm doing all this entrepreneurial shit but feel (laughs) incredibly guilty about it and way, way, way outside of my comfort zone because I've got, you know, unresolved trauma going on. At the same time, I'm watching my cousin who'd gone through all the same shit, completely derailed and dependent on alcohol and drugs. And it was that was hard to deal with, not because people were making comparisons, but because I loved him. You know, he was a close close cousin almost like an older brother and my business kind of continued to go from strength to strength and the first networking meeting I ever went to I actually met Andy the the co-founder of Cobreak so we got chatting and (laughs) to get into this network club um, you had to be a unique business so if there was two plumbers one wouldn't be allowed to come and there was already a graphic designer in this networking club And I hadn't really considered that I was going to be in marketing, even though I was doing social media and social media ads were about to launch and all these things. I was a graphic designer, but there was already a graphic designer in the club, but I knew I had a camera, so just told them I was a photographer, (laughs) because I was like, I'm never going to get the network, I'm from like some yokel village way out back beyond, I need to get into these clubs and start telling people about what I do, so I'm a photographer, and I got in the room, and you have to stand up and do your 60 seconds Like, oh, hi, I'm Joel. I, I take fantastic photos that transform your business. If you'd like to talk more about it, I can show you how you can utilise those photos in your website and your business stationery. And all the various areas you might need them, come and have a chat with me. And Andy came and had a chat with me. And i will Andy, by the way, I'm actually a graphic designer. But if you do need photos, I'm all right with them too. And um, that kind of like, I mean, it was a little bit dishonest, but that photographer... Um, cameo didn't last because the graphic designer in the group soon left and then I just explained what I truly did and that photography is just part of my arsenal blah 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 but met Andy and we've worked together ever since and I would say for the first five years of our business relationship and we we hadn't merged into a joint company by then Andy had no idea of the things I was struggling with in terms of mental health and, and medication and therapy and all these things. Because I just presented as a guy who was determined, had ideas. Uh, he thought I was 45 when I was 25, so it gives you an idea on the life experience I'd had. And we just got on really well and, and, and worked together and you know ended up sharing an office and building these things up. And just before we took on our office together, New Year again actually, um, my dad went round to check on my cousin because no one had heard from him for a couple of days and found him um, dead. He'd, he'd drunk himself to death at New Year. So another another trauma to add to the list, and obviously it wasn't great for my dad either, who was also close to my cousin, his nephew. Um, and so we kind of like, yeah, the, the level of resilience. But what that did for me was it gave me a huge injection of perspective because me and him had had the same things happen to us. And... You know, I, I miss him to this day. I miss the guy he was when when he wasn't struggling with alcohol and drugs. And I remember him defending me when people were picking on me in the playing field. And he used to do this thing where he put me in the bottom of a sleeping bag and then swing me around like I was a toy. But it, it was great when you were a kid. And we'd have water fights and stuff like that. Like, I miss him terribly. But the, the lesson I learned from that was that 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 could be me. Um, yeah, that could be me. And I've, I'm actually building something incredible here. Now, that's not to say I haven't gone through tremendous struggles since, because I have. And COVID being one of them, where you know every element of self doubt and trauma comes to get you when you know you're thinking about selling your house to keep your business going and all the things that all the joys that COVID brought all of us. But, yeah, Andy and I moved into an office together shortly after that had happened. And within another three or four years, it became very clear that we needed to merge because we were bloody confused who was doing more anyway by that point. And people knew us as Andy and Joel. You know, we came as a pair, and, and that's where Codebreak was born. And Codebreak at that time was very local. You know, we worked – we did have some national clients, but a lot of our clients were in Shropshire – and we had some really cool local businesses, so, you know, businesses that I get on with to this day. And it, it was going great, Guns. We building up the team. A lot of the lessons I'd learnt in life, in, earlier in life from business and stuff i had really started to imprint our company values. You know, I'd started to explain to Andy my story and some of the things I'd gone through and why it was important to me that we helped others. And he told me his story and some of the things he'd gone through and why it was important to him that we helped others. And we really started to build up a picture of something that was far had a much bigger purpose than than our separate lives. And that was incredible. And, you know, part of that is where the kind of Stay Hungry mantra comes from, why this podcast is called Stay Hungry. And like the other side of it is that Andy and I are both geeks. Like he he probably doesn't admit it as much as I do. But, you know, he loves Star Trek. I like Star Wars. We both like comics and Comic Con and all that shit. We're both into like World's Strongest Man, and all these things. We had a lot of parallels where it was like, oh, this is cool. Like, we're we're coming from totally different lives. We've had totally different life experiences, different traumas, different pleasures, but we're bringing it together into one cool thing. And just as we started to really pick up traction, and we just, you know, got to the cusp of a seven-figure business and COVID hits, and it was like someone turned off the lights. 80% of our clients gone at once. All of our local clients that were like supposedly our best mates hardly any of them supported us and some of them could have as well and you know that that teaches you a lot that where they chose to turn off paying for their marketing but still got brand new company cars the following year you know little things where you're like oh that's mm, not sure about that and like the local clique as such looked after itself and we didn't feel part of that um and that was a real test of resilience that period because you're not getting paid you've got banks back loans flying around you've got staff to pay we couldn't furlough our team because they'd all got individual skills and we were too small because you lose one it takes away a big chunk of your income um and so that that proved really hard and a lot of my problems sort of came back a lot of my issues i started to struggle with anxiety and depression again um I lost a lot of weight, I didn't gain weight this time, which norm you know, if I'm off my food, something's seriously wrong. And these things really started to trouble me and I and I got you know, I got it got as dark as it could get and I'd only just got married. And so all of these things that I thought I'd dealt with and I'd done a good job of building up resilience on and all of it, I it's all came home to roost again. Oh, fucking hell, when's this going to end? But, again, I was faced with a choice. It was like like thrive or die, and that sounds so extreme. But I was telling Andy what was going on, and we were like, let's just fucking write a book. Let's just do it. Like, it was no better time than now to write a book. We were both twiddling our thumbs. We weren't. You know, we were working hard to bring new business in, but that wasn't necessarily forthcoming. So we wrote a book in 60 days, and... Um, and it was a best bestseller in sixty one days. So from conception to launch, self published, and that changed the tide for us. We started to attract businesses far and wide. Podcast started to get traction, uh, and I was still really struggling with where I was mentally at the time. And I'd, I'd been back to the doctors and done everything I needed to do. Got myself back in therapy. It was it was really tricky, really tough, and. I decided that enough was enough, that I just was never gonna go through that again. Which is easier said than done. You know, you can never be certain but touch wood that I won't. And I decided that a lot of the things I'd gone through, like, had happened not not for a reason, but that there was purpose to it, there was things I could use from the good and the bad, to help me be a better person, to serve our clients better, to serve the type of people I wanted to serve better, the kind of people that want to have a positive impact on the world, the kind of people that are hungry but but kind, the kind of people that keep their word but have real accountability for what they're doing, the kind of people that have serious purpose to what they're doing but still measure themselves, the kind of people that don't spend much time in their comfort zone and achieve amazing things, but they're still humble. They're like, that's the kind of, you know, I'm just reeled off our values in one way or another, but that's the kind of people that I was motivated to work with, to help people and have fun. And I could see, and I don't know why I could see it, but I could see having huge impact by helping those kind of people. Because if we can help those people be massive, and they're doing good, then that can have tremendous social impact. And that purpose that dawned on me, completely changed the game for me because i went from wanting to get by wanting to make ends meet wanting to make some money wanting to win the game to wanting to make positive change and when you wake up in the morning what am i going to do today i'm going to make positive change we're going to have a positive impact and help people and have fun that is a hell of a reason to wake up every morning and when you've been seriously depressed or feeling seriously low And you know you've got a skill set that when you wake up in the morning, you can be like, I can have positive impact on the world, help people and have fun. Fucking hell, that's a good reason to get up. And even when you're feeling a bit shit, that's a good reason to get up. And so that's what we decided. And we just fucking went for it. And once the lockdown's finished, we got ourselves back to where we were before and much bigger, quickly. And we've never looked back, to be honest. You know, there's been challenges there's been tremendous challenges there's been cash flow challenges there's been people who've tried to copy our staff there's been uh employees that weren't what they said they would be you know things that are really tough to deal with you know we've both had family issues but those lessons from earlier in life that that resilience stands strong and when you couple resilience with purpose fucking hell you can do some damage and that, that's what we intend to do you know code break's just getting started we The marketing we do for people, helping people from literally the conception of of their growth to ads through their email funnels, their website, the printed marketing that goes around it, the way they do their sales pitch, and then how all of those things talk to each other, the technology in between, that's what we do. And sometimes, like as a marketing company, we're not actually brilliant at communicating that we can do all of that, because we don't want people to come to us and say, oh, we'd like a website or we'd like a sales page or we'd like a letterhead we want people to come to us and say we'd like to improve the lives of five thousand people in the northwest by and like it could be installing solar panels on their roofs it could be by educating them on the benefits of exercise in the morning whatever it might be but if they've got a real purpose that we can tap into and then help them sell amazing and then we can use a combination of our skills so it might be that they need business stationery a website ads retargeting pr but we knit it all together we don't do it we don't just do one bit and then expect them as the business to knit it together and that kind of like resilience piece and all the things i've learned and andy's got his own story with some amazing things and andy's done some ridiculous things there's some really interesting things in andy's story when you couple our two stories together and the things we've overcome and the things we've learned and the, the obstacles we've overcome and the number of mistakes we've both made and learnt from, I think we've created an environment where not only Code Break and our staff and our suppliers can thrive, but our clients can thrive. And I love that. Like, no better purpose than waking up in the morning to help people and have fun. Now, I realise that's been hell of a ride. and And I've only touched on things because I was trying to be sensitive to some of the subjects I was covering, but you know, if anyone ever wanted to talk about any of those things, wanted to ask me more questions, I'm an open book on this, so don't hesitate to DM me at Joelstone Official on Instagram and all the other platforms. Um but if you are looking for a company that truly cares and a company that can really get behind your purpose and help you structure what your marketing looks like, be that from your ads, your website, your email funnels, your newsletters, any of that. Hop on codebreak.co.uk. You can request a discovery call. We'd love to chat to you. And, you know, we're really doing some awesome things with some awesome companies, and it'd be awesome if you were the next one. All right. Take care, everyone. Stay hungry. Mm-hmm.